Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dev, what's going on? What's going on? How's your week been? Uh, you know what? It has been very busy. Uh, I'm collecting data and I actually decided to stay an extra week because there are a lot of big events going on at my field site mm. uh, this upcoming week. I actually get to travel with them to the Birmingham Civil Rights Museum. Oh, that's dope. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was it was worth the extra week to stay, um, see what they're trying to do with students in terms of teaching them black history. And I'm really excited. Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds like it's going to be fun. And you probably get some good, rich data from that, too. Yes. Yes. That's good. What's going on with you? Uh, Nothing much. You know, I think it's been a pretty good week. You know, I got some opportunities that popped up, some good research opportunities now um, that, you know, I'll probably share at a later date once things are confirmed. But, you know, I talked to some people, so I got some pretty good things going on there that should get me all the way to tenure on this new research agenda. So that's exciting. Um, And yeah, it's been a chill week, just teaching the normal stuff for real, for real, keeping up with everything. And I will also want to say shout out. It's been a good week, too, for uh for BHD, you know, uh, we've gained uh, quite a few new listeners. So shout out to, to all the new listeners. And, and we put up our first blog post uh, this week, too. So shout out to Miss Ja, who wrote the first BHD blog post, which is pretty good on Black Lives Matter. If you haven't checked it out yet, definitely go check it out. And we'll be trying to, you know, put up blog posts frequently. And if those of you are interested and never put up a blog post before or you want to do it, um, just send it to us. You know, we're, we're, it's a blog, it's a BHD community blog post. So we want to keep that going and the view, the viewpoints you all have and the, and the perspectives, you know, we want to highlight that and, and have an outlet for you to put it up. So, so shout out to Ms. Jaw for putting up the first one and mm-hmm. anyone else that wants to continue, keep, keep sending them to us. Yes, I agree. I felt like it was the perfect post for Black History Month and thinking about how we educate our youth uh, about Black history and going beyond the surface. Yeah. So I really appreciated that post. Yeah, it was good. It was good. So yeah, it's good. Um, so I'm sure we got some old Lord news ready to rock. We do. We have quite a few stories. All right, let's, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so the first story is something we actually tried to warn everyone about last year. Mm-hmm. So there have been a lot of angry tweets that have been going out this week as people realize that either their tax refund is not as big as they had expected or they owe money. Mm. The first time ever. Oh, man. <laughs> According, do they say why? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, about to say, do they say why that's the case? Uh, yeah. Well, one is related to withholdings. 
In addition Mm. to changing the tax law, the IRS or the government also changed withholding tables. In addition to that, a lot of exemptions that people historically had were taken away. Additionally, because they gave a larger individual deduction, they took away itemization for things that, you know, people had done in the past. So if you ran a business, you could deduct a lot of your business expenses. That is no more. So there were a lot of things that people used that helped them get a larger refund. And it's just not available anymore because of how the new tax law and withholdings tables are uh, written. Mm, mm. Oh, Trump. Yeah. And the average (laughs) refund, they said the average tax refund is down by 8.4%. But if you look at some of the angry tweets, you know, there were some people, a lot of people who voted for him, um, who talked about how the refund was down like 500%, literally thousands of dollars. That's what one person said. Mm. Another person said, my wife and I usually get a good return. This year, we owed an extra $2,400 to the government. Mm. Mm-hmm. Somebody else owed $5,000 with the same W-4 exemptions. But the key to that is they changed the with exemptions. They changed the withholding. So, yeah, you had the same exemptions. You had the same withholdings. But that all changed. And therefore, you might owe. And we tried to warn you all back in like August <laughs> or July to make sure you, like you were looking at your uh, W-4 to make sure, you know, you, you weren't going to be caught up this for this February surprise. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I, I didn't do my taxes yet, but now I'm nervous. <laughs> but I should be good. <laughs> oh, man. I should be good, but that's crazy. I know people like, you know, you're expecting to get that, that little extra money back and finding out that you owe a couple thousand dollars. Yeah, that's going to hurt. That's going to hurt a little bit. Yeah, um, and, and like I said, I think we, you know, we said this before. I mean, I know people have their own political views, but anything that Trump signs, I'm always skeptical. skeptical <laughs> of. <laughs> it's <laughs> always look for the fine print. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. all I'll say. That tax uh, reform was not for the middle class. It was really for the rich, and that's you know, that's what it boils down to. And. I don't know if I heard any rich folks complaining yet. No. And the scary part about this is not only is it uh, financially harming the middle class in the sense that people may be old, they're not getting the refund that they expected, which they you know, likely had plans for things, bills, et cetera. But we are experiencing a deficit related to the tax reform because we are not pulling in revenue from our highest earners. So we are experiencing a deficit and we are also harming consumers who are supposed to be out here buying. So it's kind of like these are the types of things that let you know that a financial something is brewing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're gonna have to get somebody on that. I think I, I think I, now that I'm thinking about it, I might have somebody in mind to kind of talk taxes and, and, and policy and politics and how this all works. Cause mm-hmm. so I think we just need to inform folks on this because yeah, if we don't tax the if we don't tax the rich, man, we're not bringing enough money to fund all these resources and stuff we need to do. So it's important. We need taxes, but we just don't want to tax the people who who make the least. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, So this next uh, or the next couple stories are just people um, saying crazy things, putting their foot 
in their mouths. Um, so the first story is uh, a county Republican leader in Michigan is under fire uh, from a social media post. Uh, he was responding to some protests that was at a California university. Um, students were, you know, in an uproar. I think there was a conservative speaker coming or, or something like that. But in response to that protest, he said in order to control the protest that there maybe needs to be another Kent State incident because those students don't think there are any consequences to their actions. Now, why is that so shocking? For those of you who don't know, um, in the late 1960s or early 1970s, there were protests that happened with students at Kent State University related to the Vietnam War. In response to the protests, which, you know, it had gone on for a few days, the Ohio National Guard came in and um, 28 guardsmen fired approximately 67 rounds over a period of 13 seconds, killing four students and wounding nine others, one of which was permanently uh, paralyzed. That's wild. So... Mm, you're saying that in response to protests, we need another Kent State shooter. And of course he apologized. He was like, oh, that was taken out of context. No, it no, wasn't taken out of context. And he said it across more than one platform. He said it on Twitter and on Facebook. And like, it wasn't like the exact same message, but it, it, it had the same meaning. Like we need to, you know, stop these protesters with a Kent State incident. He cray cray. Yeah, that's wild. There's no way you can play with that. There's no way to take that out of context. Like, yeah. that's the incident you're referring to where people died and got shot. No, that's not how you respond to peaceful protests, buddy. Yeah. And even if it's not peaceful, these students at Kent State were unarmed. So they could, if they were doing crazy things in the heat of protesting, they could have been taken out in other ways besides bullets. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to shoot people, man, that that are angry. Uh, yeah. Fatal violence. I don't know. But it's always kind of been a response of, <laughs> of white folks in power, you know, using violence to suppress protests. So. Yeah. And he yeah. said one bullet stops a lot of thuggery. That's how you know that was not taken out of context. Yeah, definitely not taken out of context. You know what you said. Yeah. And deep down, that's what you mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so speaking of foot in the mouth syndrome, although he probably meant this, I don't think this was foot in the mouth. Um, so you know, Elizabeth Warren has officially announced her, you know, bid for president. Mm-hmm. Well, Trump wanted to mock her, and so he decided to tweet on February 9th. Today, Elizabeth Warren sometimes referred to by me as Pocahontas, joins the race for president. Will she be our first Native American presidential candidate? Or has she decided that after 32 years, this is not playing so well anymore? And then he says, see you on the campaign, all caps, trail, Liz. Oh my God, man. Somebody take that man's phone, please. (laughs) Yes. First of all, he's calling her Pocahontas. That's really offensive. He's referring to her Native American background. And in the past, he has praised uh, Andrew Jackson, the president who was responsible for the Trail of Tears. Actually, he has a picture of him in the Oval Office. 
Yeah, he's wild, man. This guy. It, it, it's inappropriate, but I'm sure his fans like it. Yeah, no words, man. Like, come on. Like, so many insensitive remarks from this guy. Um, you know, I just heard recently before we recorded, started recording this, um, this, the newscaster was just talking about like he he was like I truly believe that if Trump like went outside and like shot somebody in broad daylight that his supporters would still support him. Yeah, and Trump even said it to said it himself on a campaign trail he back did, in like twenty sixteen. He, he was like I could go out in the middle of Times Square and shoot somebody and you know my fans will still love me. That's wild to have that kind of support, man. It's oh scary. It, it's is. it really is. It really is. Oh boy, we gotta do better. But yeah, somebody take that man's phone, please. Yeah. Speaking of offensive comments, I'm pretty sure you heard this week about uh, Liam Neeson's comments. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, um, one of his friends, um, you know, I guess told him that uh, they were attacked and raped by uh, someone black, and. In response to hearing that, he said he walked the streets hoping to kill some black bastard in revenge. This guy was wild for saying that. Yeah, he said he was just hoping that somebody kind of like approached him the wrong way or did something because he was ready to go off and, and kill a black bastard. He didn't care who it was. Yeah, that's crazy. And even like his rep- apology, I think, not even apology, it was something he was on like today or something, you know, next day. And he didn't even like apologize for his remarks. You know, it was, yeah. it was like, come on, man. Uh, it's, it's wild, but it reminds me of like, you know, um, from the I had posted this too, um, I think on Instagram, like the Equal Justice Initiative. They did a lot of work on like lynching. And, and this is like that kind of like lynch mob mentality. Yeah. A, a black man is accused for something and then the white men would go out and pretty much look for any black man to like lynch and kill like the whole community would be in jeopardy because of these allegations or what happened you know especially harming a white woman Mm -hmm. Um, and that's exactly what he was doing man like exactly to the T Mm -hmm. Um, no change from that so it's kind of wild yeah and it's it's scary but it uh, I think that was the the perfect imagery for you to kind of bring into this how something happens and we want to lynch black men. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (sighs) okay. So this next story is a little wacky. So, you know, there's been a lot of conversation over the last year about consent, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. So when we talk about consent, what's usually the context we talk about that in? It's usually dealing with um, sex in some capacity. Sure. Yes, yes. Well, an Indian business executive would like to expand our conversation about consent. And he has decided that he wants to sue his parents for giving birth to him without consent. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I saw this story. I'm like, I cannot believe the headline I was reading that this was actually true. Um, because one, it's like impossible to do. Yes. It's like, I mean, it is impossible to do. It's not even like impossible to do. I mean, you can't, how do you ask an unborn child for consent? Yeah. Um, You know. So do you think he's just trying to spark a a larger conversation? Like what you can't, because either way, if you can't 
ask for consent, then you're ultimately saying you should not be able to have children because there is zero way to provide consent or yeah, ask for consent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the funny thing when I read the story is like he, I, I think he, I mean, he clearly has to do this for attention because I think both his parents and one of his parents are lawyers and they pretty much just like, you know, laughed him out the room. Um, and, and this, you know, they know this isn't going to hold up in court. I think one of them said, if you want to do this, then, you know, don't expect me to go easy on you. You know, he, she said, I will destroy you in court. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> family. No, nobody wins. Uh, in a family feud. <laughs> like, come on, get out of here, man. Like, you can't be serious. But upon reading it, apparently it comes from like a part of some like uh, philosophical uh, tradition or ethical philo- philosophy or f- philosophy, not philosophy, uh, <laughs> called antinatalism, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, that whole premise of getting consent or not bringing people into this world that they will suffer is kind of like wrong. Like, is that ethical? Mm-hmm. Um, where they bringing like people or animals into this world and they're suffering. So he's, he's coming from that like lineage of thought. And I think he's probably trying to raise more awareness on this um, but it's silly. It's, it's silly. And he seemed like he had a good life. He's an executive right now. So stop He's an executive it. coming from lawyers. You, you came from a privileged lifestyle. Now you got, now you're just bored and looking for some, something to get into. I was like, yeah. mom and dad, why did you, why did you make me? Make yeah. Me? <laughs> but speaking of uh, birth and, and bringing life into the world and also kind of ushering us into today's topic. I have some yes lord news today. Um so back okay. in November we interviewed Dr. Nicole Sparks, a third year OBGYN resident in Savannah, Georgia, about uh mm-hmm. maternal health outcomes for black women. And luckily or and I'm happy to say that Dr. Nicole Sparks actually just welcomed her own beautiful bundle of joy into the world. Hey. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And she's a resident in Savannah and she actually named her daughter Savannah. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So congratulations to Dr. Congrats. Nicole Sparks. I'm so happy for you. And, you know, it was an awesome conversation with her. We learned so much. Hope you can check out that conversation and today's conversation, which is also with doctors and about health. Mm hmm. mm -hmm. Yes. You know, continue on with this month's kind of theme of of health related stuff. Um, We we have on two doctors who will be really discussing a lot of questions that we had about, uh, you know, things that with health related issues, weight loss, myths and misconceptions about the medical field and even their own experiences as being a black male and a black female as, you know, practitioners, health practitioners and what they go through, too, which a lot of the things I wasn't really familiar with until they started shedding it. So it was really, really interesting conversation as far as their experiences and also just giving advice about health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might not be able to pick up on this in the interview, <laughs> uh, but Dr. John Fongay is actually my husband. Hey. And so, you know what? I decided, you know, when I interview somebody, I'm going to give them the hard questions. I'm going to be professional. So you might not be able to pick up on that dynamic, uh, but he is my husband. And also uh, Dr. Fongay and Dr. Jones, they actually went to medical school together. I don't think mm-hmm. they mentioned that, but... You know, they're good friends. I have known both 
for a long time. Um, so it's a good conversation. Yeah, it was good. It was really fun. So I know y'all will get a lot out of it. And, and you know, again, there's a lot of a world that some of us may not be familiar with. You may go to the doctors, but may not know what goes on behind the scenes. So they were definitely shedding some light on that and giving us some good advice, even on how to even be good patients, which yeah. is kind of funny, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. How can you stop being that irritating patient who, you know, is ruining their own health outcome? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So make sure we all pay attention to that because we all want good doctors, but I think doctors also want good patients. So Yes, yes. All right, so so let's get into it. All right. Catch up with y'all afterwards. During our last episode, we explored the determinants of racialized health disparities in the Black community using a sociological lens. Building on that conversation, today's episode addresses potential causes of and solutions to the Black-white health gap from a medical perspective. Specifically, we interviewed Dr. Shalitha Jones, a family medicine physician and hospitalist in Arkansas, and Dr. John Fungay, a hospitalist in Illinois who specializes in internal medicine and in pediatrics. In addition to discussing their experiences as young Black physicians, the doctors also provide insight into health issues and outcomes in the Black community. Additionally, they offer excellent advice on how to become a healthier you in 2019. Yeah, very excited to have you two. So we always um, start by just having our guests to introduce themselves so that our listeners and we can learn a little bit more about who you are. So the first question is, you know, tell us about yourself, your professional background and what made you pursue medicine. And we'll we'll say ladies first. Okay. Well, you pretty much summed it up for me, but um, my name is Shalitha Jones and I am family medicine trained. Um, I decided to forego clinic work for hospitalists. So um, I do do hospital medicine uh, at this time. And kind of for me, getting into medicine was what people kind of think more as, I guess, the cliche, but, you know, just kind of wanting to help people um, at a young age. I had a, a love for kind of the human body and how it worked just from biology and kind of dissecting different things. And, you know, that just turned into, OK, let's try the, the medical field because that can kind of bring both things together. So that sums it up for me. Cool. What about you, John? Yeah. So. Pretty much like that. I think I gave a good intro. I specialize in uh, internal medicine and pediatrics, so sort of a double major type thing. And uh, my interest in medicine kind of came along with just a strong interest in science, how things work. Uh, always loved problem solving. And medicine kind of had a nice mix of the science aspect and the human interaction. And, and then the cliche answer of always giving back and helping people. So it was a perfect perfect profession to have everything that I would like to do in my career and life. So it's kind of an easy decision for me. Nice, nice. So, you know, our next question being, um, of course, this podcast focuses on the experiences of people of color and both of you are physicians of color. So what is it like being a physician? You know, how is your identity as a black man and black woman kind of shape your experience in the medical profession? 
Okay. You want to go first, Dr. Jones? Sure, sure. So I will say just being a physician, period, it, it it's tough. It's very rewarding, but it is tough. I think anything in life having to kind of deal with people at times can be can be tough because you have they have a higher expectation of certain professions, of course. Um, now, being a black woman physician, that is even tougher. Um, I have often, and I guess I can go ahead, well, in the South especially, I think it's just um, on one hand, you have people who, of course, put you to the higher standard and, and you have so many people rooting for you and that are proud of you because they don't get to see, you know, people who look like them in the field that we are in. And so you get a lot of a lot of encouragement and, you know, just people who are so proud who you've never met before in your life. And then on the other hand, you know, you do get the, the other side of it where sometimes you'll have people kind of slip in. Well, is there any other doctor available? Or I think sometimes they kind of mask it as, well, wow, you look so young, you know, and are, are you really the doctor? And regardless to you having your white coat on and you have your name badge on that clearly says doctor, you know, with the MD on there, but it is, um, it is very challenging, but can also be rewarding. Yeah, it's kind of similar things. Um, I mean, overall, the job is rewarding, like as demanding as it is the many, many years training hours on the job, like it's demanding. But I mean, it's truly rewarding. I love what I do. But from like a black male perspective, just in any kind of field, the higher you go up, especially like in these very professional fields, like you start to realize that there's not many people look like you were around. So like in college, you might be the only person in your class, kind of the same thing. And the profession now, like I pretty much in the hospital, like people know me. They might know my name, but they know my face. There's only pretty much a handful of us around. Mm -hmm. And so like Dr. Jones was saying, like you'll, your patients, your black patients, they will immediately like, like, so you're the doctor and you can just immediately see in the eye contact how proud they are, or they'll shake your hand a little bit longer or give you a dab, or, you know, their embrace would be a bit longer as well, or they'll just outright tell you, like, congratulations, like, it's, it's so good to see more people like us in the field, and we hope you continue to do well. And it's just really good to hear that from perfect strangers. Um, one of the things that I noticed early on in my training is, uh, like, you'll be mistaken for other people on the staff, so you walk into a patient's room and they don't really know you're the doctor. We know you might have your stethoscope on and your tag will say physician. And so one of the things like I will start wearing like my lab coat everywhere I go. Like some people might get away with that, but I start to have to make sure I'm dressed like a physician. So there's not many who look like me. I got to make sure outwardly that I look like one. So to help reduce that, uh, that confusion that I'm actually supposed to be here type thing. So, you still have those obstacles you and those perceptions you try to get through with your patients to prove that you're supposed to be here and also with maybe other people in the staff. But I mean, the same kind of obstacles you have, and I think with any kind of higher profession as a black female and a black man is, is, is still there in healthcare. Um, thank you for uh, for sharing that. And I was actually, uh, Dr. Jones, have you ever been like mistaken for a nurse? 
Oh, every day. (laughs) And and the thing about it is, you know, most of the time when I go into a patient's room, you know, it's, you know, hello, good morning. I'm Dr. Jones, you know, and, you know, we'll go forth from there. And, you know, sometimes you walk into a room and they may be on the phone or something. And even though I've clearly stated, you know, um, good morning, I'm Dr. Jones. They'll tell their person, oh, my nurse is in here. I have to get off the phone. And so then again, I'm, you know, they hang up and I'm, okay, I'm Dr. Jones, you know, just to kind of maybe they didn't get it the first time or weren't listening, but, you know, definitely all the time, all the time I get mistaken for a nurse or, you know, and like John, I wear my white coat, you know, and you would think that that kind of throws some flags. But I do understand right. now that a lot of times there are other, you know, clinicians and, you know, in the hospital now, everybody wears a white coat. So some of the nurses wear white coat, the lab techs wear white coats. Yeah. So I guess I do get where maybe that doesn't stand out as much anymore. But, you know, my name badge still does <laughs> or what I specifically tell you I'm Dr. Jones. So I don't know if sometimes it's that they they kind of don't get it or they just don't want to get it. Uh, sometimes I do feel that it is intentional, unfortunately, you know, even though maybe they do know that I am the doctor or clearly they hurt me. Um, it, it does still happen more than it should. Yeah. Yeah. I- I asked that because I've heard that from actually quite a few uh, physician, women physicians in general, but especially like women of color who are physicians. Um, one, one thing, another thing I wanted to ask was, you know, what are some of the myths and misconceptions about your profession? Um, yeah. Oh, I think one, uh, and one that jumps out a lot is like, if I come in, like, the lab coat in, I got my tie on and to say I'm a doctor is like, oh, he must, he must be wealthy. Like he's definitely got a great lifestyle. And I'll be like, nah, that's not completely accurate. You know, like putting years of training, that debt comes with you. <laughs> <laughs> so like, so the lifestyle you think I'm living ain't necessarily the same lifestyle that's portrayed on TV. So I think that's definitely one of the myths is, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, make a good decent pay but it's it's not the private jets you might intensely might think or the lavish cars all the time (laughs) (laughs) right i definitely agree with that i think one of the other things that i notice most is kind of this um this god complex and even though i know that some people do have that i think more patient patients think that it's more prevalent than not you know they're like oh you're the doctor you think you know everything or you know it's your way or not and that's absolutely not true you know I try to be as honest with that as I can with my patients you know no I do not know everything now I have gone like John said through extensive training you know and have learned certain things but that you know doesn't make me you know the know-all and I can't necessarily you know fix every single thing and a lot of times when people are of course coming to a physician they think 
you have to fix it, you know, or that's what they're here for. They came for a problem and you have to know the answer. You have to be able to fix them, you know, or so they think. And unfortunately, you know, it just doesn't doesn't work like that. I think that's one of the things that makes um, the field a little bit tougher because people sometimes feel like, you know, you have power over, you know, life and death and that you are supposed to have all of the answers to everything that's wrong with them. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's, it's them coming in with those expectations and they have to set some realistic expectations on your capabilities and the things that you can do. Kind of going along those lines, thinking about myths and misconceptions. I know a lot of time there's a lot of talk, especially currently with our political climate and just in the general public overall, there's a lot of conversations surrounding pharmaceutical companies. And sometimes people find it difficult to trust uh, medical professions when they have to deal out certain prescriptions and things along those lines because they feel that pharmaceutical companies are paying doctors off or telling them to give patients more patients to their direction so that they can make more money. Do you see that in your profession? How true is that, if it's true at all? Yeah. I don't see it as much. Um, A lot of... Anything that kind of goes back in terms of like the drugs available, like that's more like in the administration above my pay grade kind of determine like what's available. But I do try to, it comes down thing to communication, education. So communicating to your patients that if I am providing a drug, um, it's not for my benefit in terms of I'm going to get paid anything extra. Um, it's really because I think it's appropriate. And I go through the cons and pros for medication to provide and, you know, possible adverse effects, but clearly the benefits and why. So um, really, I think it's a lot of that when it does happen, it's really just, it, it's resolved pretty quickly and easily by just explaining why and a good communication. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think um, recently they've been cracking down on that more because I remember, you know, in the past you would see a lot of pharmaceutical sales reps, you know, around. You'd see all of the little gadgets, whether it was, you know, a pen, a staple or some other kind of medical something or they buying dinners or, you know, just all types of things. But they've actually cracked down on that. So they're actually not allowed to do that to that extent anymore. I remember even in medical school, you know, some of my attendings letting me know that, you know, they can't even, all the pens and everything they used to hand out, they're not allowed anymore because of um, kind of perceptions like that where people are thinking that the doctors are getting a kickback because, well, let me prescribe this medication, you know, for this company so that I can get, you know, X, Y, Z. And that's absolutely not the way it works. And as, you know, research advances, there are medicines that work better than certain medicines. And unfortunately, they all can't be on a $4 you know, prescription plan, but that for, you know, a particular patient may necessarily be the best medication available. And so that just kind of goes back to patient education. Like, um, 
Dr. John said, just talking to your patients, explaining to them why you pick this medication over another one. Because I do have patients that will say, well, why this one? Because my cousin takes such and such and such. And you have to explain to them, well, your situation may not be, you know, exactly the same as your cousin. So patient education, I think, can go a long way with that issue. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. And speaking of what patients come in and do and what they say, because, OK, so I'll, I'll, I'll share this. I'm one of those patients who, if I have a symptom, I'm going to go to Google and figure out what's wrong with myself. And then I'm going to come in and I'm going to have a conversation with the doctor. So I was wondering, in like thinking about, like you said, somebody's cousin may say something and, you know, they're coming in. Like, what are some like pet peeves or bad habits that patients come in with? Like, uh, like how can we be better patients? In other words, like what are what are some of the mistakes that patients make when they come in with all of their Google or cousin knowledge? (laughs) Well, you know, the Dr. Google is extremely popular. And, you know, so you, you already expect that. It's sometimes you go into the room and the patient is already kind of explaining stuff to you. And sometimes it's a good thing because some tidbits they get out of there may actually, you know, be facts. So some of that kind of can help. But at the same time, you have to, you know, let them know that just because you read it on the Internet, isn't true. And especially when they kind of question you and you tell, you're telling them something and they're, well, that's not what I read on such and such. And it's like, well, you know, I can only, you know, give you advice from a physician standpoint. Now what you do with that, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of on you. But, you know, when it comes down to it again, it's, it, it is a challenge, you know, and not just Dr. Google or the Internet, you know, it's, well, family members or, you know, anything, wherever else they can get information from, people will get that information and then challenge you, which isn't always a bad thing, you know, because like I said, sometimes they do come in with valid points that they, you know, have picked up from somewhere or just kind of, Yeah, I always tell patients, you know yourself better than anyone else. So sometimes, you know, some of these things that they see may kind of jog some stuff and and um, actually have them tell you a little more than they may have thought was important to tell you initially. So it can be good and bad um, to kind of them coming in with things that they've kind of researched on their own. Yeah, I totally agree that I've had experiences when they'll come in and it's a toss up, like you say, it can be good or bad. But I also try to, I don't, I tell them, like, be careful what you look up, right? Because there's no real context. And if you, if you look at the list long enough and you get to the bottom, the longer the list is, the further down you go, it's going to be scary and scarier. And so you don't want to try to make sure my patients are, take that initiative to stay informed and do a little looking in. But I always try to tell them, like, you know, we got to, we got to put it in context. Uh, you know, Dr. Jones said, you're, you know, cousin might have had that but this is this is you so let's focus on what you have here now and put it in in that context and make sure we're making the appropriate decision so yeah the internet searches i mean they're (laughs) they're the plus and minus and sometimes i'll i'll pull my phone out what did you look let's look it up together so we can make sure we're looking at the right thing in the future if you're going to google something you might not want to look at this website look at this other one instead Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, go ahead. Oh, along the lines, I think you also asked, like, 
what can, you know, some people do to be better patients and kind of what pet peeves are. Um, I think one of my biggest ones and kind of probably anybody is kind of accountability and compliance. And also to the question about the, you know, pharmaceuticals and drug choices and things like that. Um, you know, a lot of patients, they want to, well, not a lot, but some patients, they, they want to put the blame on everything they can, you know, it's though this medication isn't working or, oh, doctors, they just like to prescribe pills, pills, pills. They think there's a pill for everything. And so, you know, I'll say, well, when you first came in, you remember I told you that you were kind of on that borderline for diabetes. You were pre-diabetic or all your cholesterol is getting a little bit high, higher than we'd like it to be. So, you know, let's try to incorporate some diet and exercise or, you know, we'll have the nutritionist come and talk to them and, you know, we'll say, okay, we'll see you back three months or, you know, so something like that. We'll recheck these numbers and see how we're doing. Well, three months later, you come back in and the numbers are, you know, worse than they were. And so then it's time for medicine. And, and, you know, it's like, so I think sometimes they forget about those three months where we, you know, kind of gave you the opportunity to adjust your lifestyle with diet and exercise and either, you know, whether they just did not, or it didn't quite work for them. Then we, you know, had to go ahead and start a medication or something like that. Um, and compliance, you know, when you when you do get the medicine, if it's you're supposed to take it every day and you kind of take it here or there or every third day or something like that. And then you want to come back and say kind of what's not working um, any any medication plan, of course, to work will have to be, you know, agreement between kind of the physician and the patient, because I can make suggestions all day long or say, well, this is what you should do. But if the patient's not willing to do it, or if it's something that's not even feasible for them to do, then there's no way for it to work. And so, you know, those things kind of kind of go with one of my pet peeves as far as being compliant with your medications and not just, you know, saying, oh, I just threw you on medicine because, no, we kind of talked about some more natural things that you could try, but, you know, that just didn't work out. Yeah, I want to go back to a point, too, because, um, John, you mentioned, like, there are some websites that are better than others to mm-hmm. check, possibly. Yeah. Off the top of your head, what are maybe some, if you know, right off the yeah. top of your head, websites that are terrible and websites that are a little bit more <laughs> reasonable to look at if you're trying to research? Well, definitely some reasonable ones would be, like, the CDC or, like, anything that's, or, like, the... Um, CDC jumps out right away because anything that's pretty much has peer reviews and usually such associated with the government, it's pretty well, like, it's pretty, it's a safe, safe bet that that's a reputable website. If you're just going to go on like someone's blog, like some of that might be anecdotal, some of that might be factual, it's going to be hard to determine which one it is. Mm, okay. And there's a lot of blogs out there. I'm not saying they're all bad, but they're going to say something that can change your whole lifestyle. You might want to verify it mm-hmm. with another source to make sure, you know, and that, that brings me to another question too. Cause I know 
I would see on a lot of blogs and a lot of postings, kind of even going back to Dr. Jones's point, right, about medicine and stuff like that and trying to have this compromise with students. I see also that many people try to uh, shy away from, you know, pharmaceutical medications and maybe try to go to maybe more holistic medications and and natural medications and stuff like that. Um, So what are your opinions or your experiences with with those kind of options? So some of those are. Holistic, like a holistic approach is usually, it's usually good, right? Some, the problem that some providers, some physicians might have issues that is that there's no real regulations, like it's not FDA approved. So there's no real standard to see what the side effects are, what the dosages are. Um, like I said, they're not all bad. I always say if you're going to, because some patients are going to use it regardless of what you say. So I go with that in mind at the conversation. Like, I know they're going to do it no matter what I say. So let me make sure, let me do my due diligence and do some research if I haven't heard about it to see what the potential side effects could be to make sure that if I am going to prescribe some medications that there's no adverse effect to it. So if the patient comes in and they seem educated about it, like I'll ask them what their sources are. I'll do some reading and make sure there's no like serious adverse effect on it. Yeah, I agree with that. I have had several patients actually who will bring in something to me. They'll be like, oh, I was reading about this or I saw this, you know, flash across the TV and I ordered it and they'll actually bring it in and ask me, you know, have I heard about it or what do I think about it? And a lot of the times it's stuff that, no, I've never even heard of this, but, you know, then I'll look it up right there, you know, while while we're together and I'll kind of look it look it over and see what, you know, some of the things are listed as far as possible side effects and different things like that. And then the biggest thing is, you know, I try to always have them bring all of your medicines, not just the ones that are prescribed. Try to bring in everything that you're taking, because some of these, you know, holistic medicines, they may interact with some of the prescribed medicines that you're taking. And um, so I don't ever, you know, try to shoot the patient down if they're wanting to do something more natural, because, you know, that that's great that they're taking some interest and they're wanting to do something. It's just a matter of letting them know that you know, just because, you know, it's more holistic or more natural, that doesn't mean that it's going to work for you or it doesn't even mean that it's safe for you. And I have um, another question, too, and this is a, a topic that we've talked about before on this podcast and it's been talked about politically too and I kind of want to get you know the medical perspective on the situations that, that we have you guys on the line and it has to do with uh, marijuana and legalizing marijuana um, and we hear the conversations uh, differencing between medicinal use and and of course recreational use um, but from your experience from your uh, from your just in your profession what I kind I guess are the opinions on that? Is it beneficial? Can it be beneficial? And stuff like that on the lines of marijuana usage. Yeah, I can go. So you're going to find different studies that can show some beneficial use uh, for for chronic pain or um, variety of issues. And in terms of like legislature, certain states are starting to lean more like, all right, we'll go ahead and make it legal for recreational. And some certain states are making it legal for medicinal. You're going to still very wide spectrum i feel like anecdotally of providers who are totally for it and so on but totally against it but i mean i think the case can be made plus and minus and there's likely like like i said studies and data to support that you could have there's some additional benefit to it 
Yeah, I, I agree. And um, we do have a lot of patients who, of course, come in and ask for that option. And some of the patients are, you know, like I said, chronic pain patients, like who want, you know, other options. And with, of course, the opioid crisis that is going on right now, you can, you know, kind of question, well, is this something that may help with this or would this just create a bigger problem or an additional problem to the opioids. So like the hydrocodone, oxycodones that people um, are taking for this chronic pain. Um, and so like he said, you, you have, sometimes you have some that are kind of in between, but most physicians that I've talked to either they, you know, they're completely for it or they are completely against it. But I do feel like there can be arguments made on both sides and just depending on too, also the patient, they, they have to look at, at themselves. So kind of, again, that accountability for themselves and how, if, given this opportunity, how would, you know, they use it? Would it, you know, strictly be kind of on a medical thing, which is what they're coming in kind of asking for? Or are you just asking because this is, you know, something that that you already do and now you're just trying to, you know, kind of make it a, a little bit more <laughs> acceptable, you know, by saying that this is, you know, for medicinal use. That's funny. Uh, okay, so Ty's line of questioning has me thinking about another debate. Um, and it is about vaccines. Like, so have you guys seen like recently in the news, like in, in New York and like some other places, mm -hmm. there have been lots of cases of like children getting like the measles and stuff like that. Even at uh, Harvard, like two years ago, there was like a, a measles outbreak. Um what what is what are you all's opinions on vaccinations are you know there's been some like debate on whether they are linked toward uh, linked to things like autism and things like that like should parents get their children vaccinated simple answer yes the pediatrician in me is going to say absolutely they should get vaccines and the internist who sees adults will also say yes they should get vaccines like uh, multiple so the, the one, the study that, the, the famous study that came out that was showing the link between um, autism and vaccines was disproven multiple times by future studies. So there's data, there is studies to show that vaccines are effective. Um, I mean, next with vaccines, antibiotics, it's uh, one of the biggest breakthroughs in medicine. Like you have a medication that can help prevent diseases. I think that's huge. So I always encourage um, families and kids to get vaccines. Now, of course, all medications have some risk and adverse effects. Like no one's saying that. I mean, if you read the bottles, they'll come. They, they have possible adverse effects, but the benefits far outweigh the, the small risk of the adverse effects. And all physicians do their due diligence and make sure they don't have certain allergies before given given these vaccines. But absolutely, I'm a true like, please get vaccinated. <laughs> I, I agree one hundred percent. 
and it's I don't know I, th- I think they call them like the anti-vaxxers or something but it, it's very hard to kind of try to reason with them because their mind is already made up but they you know come and kind of question like oh well we're seeing more cases of measles now and and I think it was my last year of residency there were um, in northern Arkansas cases of children you know with the mumps and things like that and it's like oh we're seeing more of that now and it's like well yeah because y'all are kind of pushing y'all's agenda more now and so there's more children who aren't being vaccinated so yes we are seeing more you know these cases come up and a lot of times they'll argue well what's the big deal if you if vaccines work so well how is my child who I choose not to vaccinate a danger to your child who has been vaccinated because they work so well? And I know some people have, you know, kind of come in and brought this as as an argument. And Dr. John probably can touch on this a little more than I can. But, you know, especially when you're talking, you know, kind of newborns and into toddler stage, these vaccines are, you know, there's a series of them. So if you're exposed and you're unvaccinated, child to a child who is beginning vaccinations or haven't, you know, completed necessary the series, then that's an issue. It's not an issue that, you know, the vaccines don't work. So we're scared for you to be around the children. They, you know, they kind of throw that out there to, I guess, get more people kind of on their side or for their argument against it. But I, I feel like the bigger the bigger evidence is the fact that we are seeing more cases now and there are more children not being vaccinated. So to me, that just kind of goes hand in hand. They're not being vaccinated. So we're seeing more cases. I agree. Please get vaccinated. Please get your flu shots. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Going along those same lines, right? Uh, Because you both work with children and families. And, you know, I think this question is important to myself and a lot of my peers because a lot of people from my age group are now becoming parents for the first time. And a lot of them, most of them are people of color or black. And so are there, from your experience, are there any common issues faced by children and adolescents of color? Um, And maybe what advice would you give to parents about improving their child's health outcomes? I would say um, one, I think one of the benefits when you're talking about children of color is that me also being a man of color, it's like you automatically just build that relationship. Like there's a certain level of trust that I've noticed that um, people of color have with me just because I'm black. And so it's nice. It's a certain level of um, you're privileged essentially. Like you take that, you're humbled by that. So you take that responsibility seriously. And also when young kids come in, they see someone who looks like them. So you're able to, whatever you say, sticks with them a little better. So one of the things I guess to answer your question is first time parents, I tell them when I used to work in a nursery, like I'll give them all the tips to look out for. And you can kind of tell them, look at their eyes, like they're hearing it, but they're not really ready for it yet. And then when they come to the first clinic visit, you say it again. So repetition about like, when to go back to the doctor, when to have a fever for the first time, how frequently to feed the kids, even when, um, even during a nap, during the nighttime as well. A lot of it is repetition for education. And then let them know that it's going to be a change, but that you're not alone. Like you have resources. Like I have not yet met a pediatrician in their clinic who is not available like by phone to help answer some of the questions that arise 
um, for newborn, for first-time parents. So they know that they're not alone from a health standpoint. And then let them know that they're capable of doing this. It's just empowering them. Like, you guys are going to be okay. And I, I think one of the things, too, is, you know, kind of establishing um, a doctor-patient relationship um, between the child and their pediatrician and, um Kind of so, like he said, they can build this trust thing. My aunt, she works at a middle school um, kind of in inner city Dallas, and her um, the population of that school is mostly Hispanic and uh, black children. And so when I used to um, do these acts, the doc sex on um, segments on the news, my aunt would show them to her class. And she had a student who I'm mean, just fascinated. And he was like, Oh, wow, you know, a real doctor. He's like, I don't know any doctors. That's, you know, he, he thought it was just amazing. And she was like, Well, what do you mean? You don't know any doctors? She's like, you, you go to the doctor, right? And he was like, Yeah, but I don't know him. And she was like, you know, that kind of opened her eyes too to like, you know, why would they feel comfortable kind of talking to their physician or, you know, just anything when they don't even, they just feel like it's another person. So one thing, as uh, John said, kind of someone who looks like them, if, if that's, you know, available, that's a good thing because that automatically kind of makes a uh, forms a bond there, but then doing it regularly because I know, you know, and as it's available to access to health care, because sometimes it's easy, you know, to maybe run into an urgent care here or take it, you know, here. But I think when, when you're able to establish a relationship with your child and their pediatrician, and this is the person that they're seeing over and over again, um, I think that builds that trust with them so that when things do arise, especially especially when they get into their adolescent years, they are more comfortable speaking to their physician and just being comfortable, you know, talking about their body, talking about the things that are going on and, um, and being able, you know, to have those conversations with, with a healthcare professional. I think she's totally right. That relationship is essential. Um, it helps us, the relationship's going to be essential in any um, healthcare encounter between the physician and the patient. And one of the things pediatricians do, like with each um, well child check and visit, they always include something called like anticipatory guidance. So there's things that we can anticipate based, based off the age and things to expect and we'll constantly, you know, reinforce that education. All right, all right now your kid's three months old and six months old. These are the things, you know, you should be thinking about you know, now we're going to start talking about solid, solid foods and, you know, try these foods first before you try other ones. And, and so having that good relationship with the provider will help, I think, helps the patients and the parents take that information in better and be more receptive to it. Mm, that's really helpful. So people get to know your doctors. So your child is not like, <laughs> I don't I don't know any doctors. <laughs> um, so. Now let's let's talk about adults because you also uh, see adults and you know a few a, a couple years ago I saw this meme and it was like you know diabetes runs in my family and kind of the the retort to that was no diabetes doesn't run in your family nobody in your family runs so I was wondering can you talk about you know kind of some of the issues that are really prevalent in the African-American community I know diabetes is one of you you mentioned it earlier 
But can you talk about some of the other issues that adult and older African-Americans face and how they can help prevent these issues before the medications come? Okay. So, of course, yeah, like you said, diabetes is a big one. And I think I have also seen that meme that you're talking about. And I think um, with diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, it, you know, they, they say that it runs in their family because almost everybody in their family has these issues. And so when you kind of talk to them, and especially now, um, the younger generation that's coming up, and they're kind of, you know, seeing these things and seeing the consequences of either these things not being managed well or not being treated at all. Um, And they're, you know, wanting to know, man, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to go through that. What can I do? And again, it comes down to some of the things, diet and exercise. You know, and a lot of people, it's not as easy as it seems. We, you know, we say it and we push it a lot, but even small changes over time can make a big difference. And it's like, yeah, all of these people in your family have these and all these people in your family, you know, they kind of eat the same things. They have the same diet. So it's not necessarily that, you know, you this is what you have to look forward to. You have to have this because they have it. And with this, we are talking more, you know, about type two diabetes. And that's some things I think that they don't understand sometimes too, that there, there are differences in the types of diabetes, but type two diabetes being the one that's really prevalent in the um, black community, you know, it's kind of, dietary changes and you can start at any it's never too early to start and it's not too late to start with these things you know we're not asking you to go run marathons or you know anything like that but just small changes to you know try to help yourself as best you can and then maybe you can not have to go on medications or I've had patients who were on medications and they adopted these lifestyle changes and they were able to come off of these medications yeah, these these diseases that you these see commonly or that are commonly associated in the black community. I mean, that just goes along with these healthcare disparities. These diseases that are more common that might burden our community a little bit higher compared to other communities, like like you said, diabetes and high blood pressure and cholesterol. And some of it is just like sleep was kind of pointing to, just kind of education that you need in terms of these small what we think is small, but these lifestyle changes you can make. And also, other other bit might just be your where you live at, the income you have, your social economic status. It makes it hard to kind of get access to these certain certain lifestyle modification changes mm-hmm. you need to make. So, like it, it comes back down to like your education, your communication with the patient, and knowing where they're from, what resource they have available. And so, some people think it's like you got to make these huge changes, but a lot of times I try to simplify it. I'm like, we got to change your diet. Like if you're adding like always eating fried food and adding salt and on hot sauce and stuff, like all these things are contributing to your overall health and you're eating a lot of, drinking a lot of soda because it's easily accessible. Like let's see where we can cut back on these small things that would be easier for you. You don't think like it's a huge burden. So like Dr. Lexley said, just education, like let's cut out the soda. Let's cut out the extra salt. Let's walk like, 30 minutes like it doesn't have to be all at one time but it's a little more active maybe you don't need to do 30 minutes start off 30 minutes just start off at five minutes start off at 10 minutes mm-hmm. work your way up yeah. just try to set realistic goals to get to the end point 
a quick follow-up question with that too, because that is a good point. <clears throat> a lot of times we talk about the differences. A lot of it has to sometimes just do with socioeconomic status and and what's available to people. So if you are aware of them, you have patients come in that say, you know, they don't have access to certain foods, you know, maybe mm-hmm. some of the more fresh type of produce or grocery stores or um, all these kind of things that you hear. What are there alternatives that you know of that you can give them like what would you say to that patient that may not have access to all that kind of stuff right so part of it is really knowing the community you're at so knowing resources you have in your community what resources that your clinic or your hospital or your health your health care system has available for a community so whether it's food banks or um if there's some, maybe the insurance company provides certain like weight loss classes, like knowing what's first knowing what's available to you. But even like, I do get that question a lot. I used to get a lot in clinic, even the hospital sometimes, like I can't go get like fresh foods. So like, let's take a step back. Like, is it because you get the fresh foods and they get bad off quickly because you don't eat them a lot. So that you have to keep buying them. How about we get frozen foods or get to get some foods and freeze them or, if you're getting canned foods, let's try to get the ones that have a lot of salt in them or the ones with added sugar. Like there's there's gotta be some places we can cut back a little bit that can hopefully um, fit within what you're able to get. And that just comes down to sitting down, actually like talking and having like real conversations with your patients. Yeah, I agree. A lot of clinics now also they have, you know, nutritionists available there in the clinic to kind of talk Thing, talk these things through with the patients. But like John said, initially, you know, we're not asking you to go out to Whole Foods and, you know, buy all this expensive stuff just at home instead of, you know, frying the fish or frying the chicken today, you know, try baking it or, you know, don't use as much salt or, you know, little things that you can do. And then, of course, the other resources that we have from our social workers or case managers that, you know, can talk to the patients and let them know what options are available for them. But, you know, there are little things, small things that you, you know, can do that don't require, um, as much money as, you know, going out and having to, especially with some of these families, you know, who they're larger families. So we may be talking to one family and this is just, you know, a three person household, whereas this person, they're seven in the household. So, you know, they're like, well, how can I, you know, not just stop by McDonald's and buy everybody, you know, a dollar value burger and, and, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that feeds everybody, but you're asking me to do, you know, X, Y, Z, and it's, it's not possible. So just, you know, some things that they can do with what they have until, you know, and once, and I think like we always say education, education, education. So just having those resources available for, for people so that they're, you know, able to see things that they, they are able to do. Right. You got to make it, you got to talk to them so they make sure they can see like, okay, I can make these small adjustments. And like if you got a large household, I tell them like we're not gonna do it just for you. We're gonna do it for the whole house. There's no point in you buying multiple foods and multiple dishes for every single person in the house. Let's get everyone in the house on the same page. That way we can all get a a good healthy lifestyle. And it'll make it easier for you shopping too. You not have to worry about taking up different items, different people. Mm-hmm. 
And it makes it easier, of course, because if you're already instilling this in your children and they're, you know, eating like this, it helps them too as they as they get older so that they've already, you know, this is kind of, this is how we eat. So, you know, things like diabetes, high blood pressure and things that may be caused by diet choices and things like that, you're already, you know, doing them a great service by instilling these healthy eating habits at a young age so that once they get older, they can kind of keep up with that. Yeah, you know, kind of going along those lines, right? When we, um, especially this is, you know, New Year 2019. A lot of people say New Year, New Me. And with that comes oftentimes a lot of weight loss goals and aspirations, right? Um, and and especially in this day and age with the media, technology, again, like we said earlier, blogs, what have you, you know, all these kind of diets and fads are all over the place and people are trying these things to try to lose weight. Um, I was just recently talking to a friend of mine um, because on social media, you know, he had posted uh, quote unquote, oh, I'm eating a keto burger, but it was just like a lettuce wrap burger. And I'm like, bro, it's been around before keto. (laughs) Like, come on, man. What is a keto burger? Uh, But we're having these conversations because now, you know, you're trying this keto diet. I know people doing things like carb cycling, et cetera. So from your professional opinion, when it comes to weight loss, what are, um, I guess, what would be your advice to people who are trying to lose weight? What are the healthiest ways to do that? So diet, of course, diet is, is a big, is a big thing. You know, um, people always think kind of diet and diet and exercise, which exercise is important, but a lot of times the biggest bang is going to come from your food choices. One thing that I like to tell patients, especially, you know, if you have chronic health issues, just kind of go in, maybe run it by your physician. I had a patient who happened to be a type one diabetic who decided that he wanted to go full fledged into the keto diet and it just wasn't the best choice for him, you know, and it was kind of, you know, kind of that thing. This is something new. I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to do it. But with, you know, kind of what he already had going on, that was not a good choice for him. So, of course, researching this new the new diets that are out and seeing if it actually works for you, because, again, just because this one works for your friend or your cousin or this celebrity, it does not mean that it's going to work for you or that it's, you know, a safe option option for you. And then a big thing that I always tell my patients too is like, don't focus on the scale. A lot of people that get so discouraged, it's like, oh, I've been exercising, I've been eating well, but my weight will not change. And it's like, well, yeah, your weight don't change, but you know, the inches or how, how are you fitting in your clothes now? Are your clothes fitting a little better? Are they feeling a, you know, a little bit looser or you yourself, do you feel like you have more energy? So that's a big thing. Don't focus on the number so much to get discouraged, but just, you know, kind of overall how you're feeling. Yeah, diet diet is a thing that's you see a lot, like you say, you see a lot in New Year, but you'll get a lot of that, especially like in the clinic as well. And a lot of things I try to do, I've learned in talking to a lot of people I, who taught me is just simplify it. Like for in terms of diet, like you can try whatever diet you want. And studies have shown that pretty much all very effective. So there's no like one diet isn't really superior to another. Of course, like Lisa said, you want to make sure that your diet fits along with whatever chronic health issue you might have. So of course, check with your physician. But pretty much, there is no one diet than the other. 
It's like, which one are you good at and which one can you stay with? And if you can stay with that one, that's probably the best one for you. But diet is key. And I just simplify it. I don't do calorie counts. I used to try to do that when I first started training, like it's got your calories, but I mean, that's hard. Like, mm-hmm. so I just keep it simple saying that whatever you eat, whatever calories you eat, whatever you don't burn off is what you're going to stay in your body. So think of it that way. So you can eat all you want and then you can exercise all you want too. But, but a mile of exercise, you're talking about a good solid mile, might burn off one cookie. So exercise is only going to do so much, right? Like, like I was working out hard the other day and I had my, my watch on. I'm doing the sandy workout. I looked at my watch. I only burned like 250 calories. I could have thought I ran a marathon. <laughs> I ain't burn nothing. So, <laughs> so you got to keep that in mind. Keep that. I put that perspective to them. Like you can only burn off so much at one time. So your diet is essential. So cut off small things first. Like if you drink a lot of soda, cut the soda down. If you're eating a whole pizza at one time, eat half a pizza. Like. Cut back on the sugary drinks, sugary um, desserts, portion control, reduce your portion size by like half. And you, you weren't even counting calories by doing that, but you've cut out a lot of calories just by doing that alone. We didn't even talk about exercise. And if you do that, I guarantee you the next time you see me, we're going to see you lost some weight. Mm-hmm. And usually when they do that, they bought in. And then I can talk about more stuff after that. Mm-hmm. But diet is essential. Okay, that's good to know. It's also depressing because I've been doing a lot of walking lately. <laughs> I mean, walk exercise is good, right? <laughs> exercise is good because exercise is good for cardiovascular exactly. fitness and it helps you maintain the weight loss. So you do need to exercise because once you lose the weight, people sometimes rebound. So if you start exercising, it helps keep the weight off. <laughs> but the cornerstone of the whole diet is the majority of it is going to be I mean, the whole way that's going to be diet. Mm-hmm. Like if you just did exercise alone, it's not going to be as effective as just doing changing diet alone. Oh, but those cookies are so good. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm going to change. I'm going to change. Cut them in half. Okay, cut it in half. Okay. Cut, cookies cut it in half. There you go. Cut it in half. Cut it in half. Portion <laughs> <Okay. in> control. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to like a more serious topic. Uh, in recent years, uh, we've seen like more conversations about racial bias in medicine and how it impacts the experiences and outcomes of Black Americans in particular. Um, one thing I've been trying to figure out more is how can patients better advocate for themselves in terms of if they're experiencing something and they feel like, you know, what they're conveying to their doctor is just not getting through to them. How can they, you know, better advocate? How can they get physicians to listen? But also how can you know, what are what are some red flags that patients should look out for in terms of like choosing a doctor and finding a doctor um, that that will be a good fit and will listen to them. Um, a big thing with that, of course, as with anything, is kind of, you know, most people, anytime you're getting ready to buy something or do something, you want to go look at the reviews. Now, they can be biased, of course, you know, that one person may have had one bad experience and they, you know, give this person a one just because something, you know, there didn't go their way that day. But overall, a big thing, you know, if you are 
kind of searching for a physician or something, ask people who you know and trust, you know, who do they see? How do they feel, you know, the doctor is in the relationship? And I always tell people who have a physician, I don't care if you've been seeing this physician for 20 years, if you feel like they don't listen to you or, you know, they'd ever give you, you know, the time or whatever the case, you can always change physicians. You know, there's there's nothing holding you to that doctor. So again, that comes with patient accountability. You know, if, if this if that relationship isn't working for you anymore, find another doctor, you know, um, kind of the red flags would be things like that. You know, if you keep telling your doctor something and you're telling them over and over and over and you feel like they're kind of ignoring it or they, oh, we'll get to that next time you come. And the next time you come, oh, we'll get to that the next time you come. You know, that's that may not be the doctor for you, whether you just started seeing them, you know, a month ago or if you've been seeing them for half your life. So always know that you have options and you you aren't bound to one physician. Yeah, I totally agree with that. When you're talking about your senior family doctor, your primary care doctor in the clinic setting, um, know that you're not bound to them. So whenever I used to work in the clinic and for my first patient encounters, the first time seeing someone, I introduce myself and I always make sure to finish up and saying, you know, if for some reason you find another doctor or you think someone's more suited to your, to what you want, like, that's okay. Like, I'm not offended. Like, my main goal is for you to be comfortable because we're going to have a conversation, we're going to have a relationship and I'm going to ask some questions and you don't feel comfortable answering them to me, like, that's okay. I want you to feel comfortable, first and foremost. That way you're giving information that's factual and truthful and you trust that I'm giving you recommendations that are also in your best interest. And like straight to say, like ask people um, who, ask people you know. Like one of the best ways probably just to ask your friend who their doctor is and if they like their doctor is good, then that's right there. You already have a, a recommendation right there. So ask around and make sure you feel comfortable talking to your doctor and comfortable um, letting them into that private part of your life and then make sure they're actually hearing you as well. If you don't feel heard, then you probably might want to look for someone else. Mm. Mm. No, good advice. Good advice. Um, recently, you know, this past year, a couple of years, I think we've been seeing a lot more light being shed on issues dealing with um, really kind of racial bias in, in the world of medicine. Largely, most of it has been conversations around black women who are having babies and kind of not getting the best care or practice when it comes to their particular doctors. So based on your experiences, former medical students and current practicing physicians, you know, how can we improve the cultural competence of doctors and kind of reduce this racial bias in care? I think that's, oh, go ahead. I would say education, you know, even, you know, we always say that for patients and education, education, but also for physicians, it's education, knowing the community that you're serving. I think one of the big things recently that we've been seeing is, um, like you said, the uh, black women in childbirth. And that's scary. It, it's for even me as a physician, you know, that is a scary thought. And it goes back to all of these medical providers, kind of their training, you know, they need to be educated um, on 
the different communities they're serving, the different things that may come in to factor when they're dealing with people of different races, you know, whatever it may be. Um, Also, like we said, we tell people to diet, exercise, but you don't know what's available in their community. They may not necessarily be able to do that. So just being aware of the community that you're serving and their issues. A big thing that I've noticed recently is um, like some of my patients with sickle cell who've been mismanaged for so long. And, and it's just simply because, you know, kind of an education thing that whether it's, you know, not catching up on kind of the CME things or just not that not being focused on so much in, um, you know, in their training or whatever. But once you get established somewhere as a clinician, um, kind of learn your patient population and do the best that you can to educate yourself on the issues in that community so that you can give them the best of you because these people, they're coming, you know, to you for help. They're looking to you for help. And if there's something that you have a question about or you're not sure about, you know, always be willing to say, I don't know, or go find someone who you may can ask or, you know, anything, but just education and understanding will go a long way with that. I think, um, like, look, I work at an institution where uh, being in the first population, like the institution as a whole is very aware of that. And so, like you said, it, it just goes back to educating your providers and your, provi- and your physicians, um, because we all have inherent biases. It's just being aware of them. And the way once you're aware of them, you can avoid whatever um, inappropriate actions, so to say, that you may do. So it's educating your providers and educating your physicians. And if you're in a position where you're educating like students, also um, using your own personal experiences, luckily like us being in that position of of people of color, we can use, um, we can more attuned to them, those biases. And so we can bring them to light and use the opportunity as teaching points. And another thing for on the patient end of it, you know, tell it if there's something yeah. that you feel was inappropriate, whether it was touching or, or speaking to you or, you know, disrespect, go to administration and report it. A lot of times people think, oh, they're not going to do anything. Oh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. And, you know, whether it's that one time or maybe they'll, you know, kind of, oh, we'll kind of pay attention to it. But if it's being repeated over and over and over, oh, they're going to take a look at it because they don't want later on down the line to have to deal with an even bigger issue. And so never feel like, you know, it's okay for you to be, you know, disrespected or mistreated or anything. If you feel that you have been wronged in any way, in any setting, go to administration, file a complaint, and you may just be the one person who's spoken up, but there may be others, you know, who who didn't feel like their voice would be heard. So that's something that on the patient side that we can do as well to um, try to reduce that bias. Yes. Tell it, y'all. Tell it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, this is one of our last questions, but kind of going to John's point about like, you know, some physicians are in a position to, you know, teach uh, the upcoming generation of physicians. And so along that same vein, like what advice would you give to our listeners who are potentially interested in pursuing a career in medicine, who may be at the beginning stages, whether they're in college or, you know, whether they're in residency? What advice do you have uh, for them in terms of pursuing a career in medicine? I would say, uh, first off, make sure that it's something that you want to do because it's a it's not a short journey by any means. Uh, you're talking about college and then uh, medical medical school as well. Then you got training after that. It's a rewarding feel, like we said earlier. But once you know you want to do it, um, stick with it. Um, it's one of those things that just, it really te- it really tests your delayed gratification. Um, so. There's obstacles and barriers that come with it, but as long as you know you want to do it and you're able to put the time in and the dedication and have the patience as well, um, it's obtainable. So I just say main thing is really know that you want to do it. And once you know it, know you want to do it, then take the steps you need to do to get to that end result and get to that goal. Yeah, I agree. And I think that is the biggest thing. Like you said, absolutely know that that's what you want to do. But at the same time, kind of look through everything because, you know, some people think, oh, I want to go in the medical field. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a nurse. Like if that's something that you feel that you want to do, you know, you want to be in medicine, kind of review and research kind of all the different ways that you can do that, you know, the different fields that are associated with it. And then once you do decide on it that, you know, like you said, just don't give up. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of money, but like spending, I'm not talking about the money that you're making. I'm talking about the money that you're paying to to get into the field. I mean, it's, it's a lot, but it can be so rewarding. So, you know, if, if that's the way you want to go, just don't don't try not to get discouraged. You know, I think we're kind of on the other end of it now. So saying don't get discouraged, that that would be fair. So you, you may get discouraged, but just don't give up. If you know that this is, you know, what you want to do to your life and you know that you will, you know, be of a great advantage to this field, then just don't give up. No, great, great, no, great advice. I'm sure somebody will will need to hear that, uh, especially going into the field. Um, so, you know, that covers up all the questions we had, but is there anything that, you know, we didn't discuss or didn't ask about that you want to speak about uh, before we close out? I think there was one thing, and I, I, I had kind of jotted down to mention it somewhere along the way, but I forgot. I think, um, you know, looking at a lot of times when we're talking about being a black man or a black woman in a field, and we are talking about, you know, how we may be treated or looked at differently, um, it doesn't always come from the other side. So I think one thing is for people to kind of um, – kind of take a take a look and see if maybe some things they may do you know I've had um, people tell me before you know oh I don't I don't want a black doctor and this was a black person telling me this you know I wouldn't want them so with you know kind of how how we're 
we deal with kind of our field and, and our identity and everything. A lot of times it, it, it doesn't come, you know, like I said, from the other side. So the encouragement and everything that we do get from others, it does, you know, help a lot and goes a long way towards, you know, knowing that, you know, we are appreciated and that, you know, we, we aren't necessarily alone, even though sometimes when we look around at our colleagues, it is kind of like, oh, this is, you know, it's kind of just, just us that's that looks like this, but, um, you know, just kind of, kind of being encouraging to one another and realizing that, you know, anybody can do anything, no matter what their background may be, if they have the training and the knowledge for it, you know, ideally you expect people to respect that, but it doesn't always come out that way. Yeah. That that encouragement goes a long way, not just from like your colleagues, but just the random people you see at the hospital and other departments, like janitorial, food service, um, people just walking on the street who might be in the medical center as well. It's, it goes a long way. And the one of the great, one of the great things also when you see that same type of encouragement, that, that sense of awe from like the pediatric patients, like that, that just gives you a little extra kick of energy on those long nights and long shifts. So. Okay, well, thank you. This was um, such an awesome conversation. I hope our listeners will get uh, uh, some advice on how to be a little bit more healthy, you know, kind of be incremental and consistent with with being healthy. And maybe we can avoid uh, some of some of these adult and childhood diseases that uh, you all discuss. Um, So that is it for uh, this episode of BHD. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, yo, Dev, what do you think about the doctors coming through to chat with us about the profession and what goes on in the medical world? Uh, I thought it was a really great conversation, partly because we got to hear a little bit about their experience. But we also was able to we were able to get like some good advice, uh, especially because, like I said, I'm on a new health kick now. And just to hear them talk about like the incremental change. Um, and like I said, that's what I've been trying to do. I didn't start the year, you know, trying to go full force with like a bunch of different things. So it was, it was good to get a little bit of uh you know, support and encouragement that like maybe I was approaching things in the right way. Yeah, yeah, no, that was definitely good advice with the with the weight loss regime. And, and yeah, man, I think sometimes just slow and steady, like I said, wins the race and doing a little bit at a time. I think a lot of times people like to go, you know, from the complete 180, something they've never been doing and it could be a lot. And I think kind of what both of them were saying, it's just about being consistent, figuring out what diet works or what kind of lifestyle works where you can make it, a real lifestyle change, right? And a part mm-hmm. of you every day instead of it being like a, a three-month fad and then you go back to <laughs> what you've done that got you in the, the area in the first place, you know, to, to the weight you wouldn't want to be at. Um, so, yeah, that was really good advice. Half a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> Half a cookie. You know what? So I wasn't surprised to hear that, you know, okay, you know, maybe some patients – uh, on the other side might say something like, oh, maybe I want a different physician. But to hear Dr. Shalitha at the end of the conversation mentioned that like there were also black patients like I don't want a black doctor like mm, that is so like, who are you people and what's wrong with you? Yeah, you know, the sad truth is that's, I think, a little bit more common than what we think. Uh, when, when I have my 
talk sometimes with the guys in Newark, you know, and I'll throw out suggestions of, you know, how we can start bettering our community by, um, you know, getting more black folk involved or supporting black businesses and all this stuff. And a lot of times they're like, they, they have that perspective of black own things or black professions or whatever being less than or people doing them dirty, right. Or not being, um, as honest as, as white folks might be, uh, which always surprised me and is always like a battle I have to do in this group of all black men. And they still don't trust their own people when it comes to these certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, so I think it was really good that, that she pointed that out because it is a hard truth that we have to face and we have to begin ta- having discussions about that instead of always just pointing the fingers at white folk. Yes, you know, it's expected that many of them are probably going to sometimes view us that way. But we also have, in order to fix the problem, we got to make sure that within our own communities that we're continuing to uplift us and viewed ourselves in the way we should be viewed, right? Mm-hmm. Like to have that deficit mindsets related to your own people. There's like this like historical saying like about like, oh, some people think the white man's ice is colder. You know, all of our ice is cold people. Like mm-hmm. it's the same temperature. Like don't be that way, especially against your own people. But yeah. Um, yeah. No, for sure. And, and, you know, I think all the advice as far as being good patients and, and not, you know, trying to go in there, trying to tell the doctor what to do because you still <laughs> looked it up on Google. <laughs> and, and also definitely not doing it if you read it off a blog site, you know, at least to have your sources be credible. <laughs> so I will admit, like I said, I am one of those people, but it's definitely on what I would feel the more credible site. So they mentioned like CDC, um, mm-hmm. Mayo Clinic is, I think, a very, and I'm saying this is a nun, a medical <laughs> professional, but I will run this across some doctors first. But Mayo Clinic is, is Mayo Clinic is a very good uh, health resource and is a very reputable, you know, health organization. Um, but I am one of those people. And I would say I've never been like anti-vax or anything like that, but I have like read studies and one I wanted to look into things for myself to see, you know, was there some um, credibility to the the claims that, you know, these early vaccines were like linked to things like autism. Um, And so, you know, I don't think, like I said, there's nothing wrong with like doing the research yourself, you know, go to doctors and ask these questions, have these conversations so that you can like ease some of your like concern or discomfort around like certain things. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I like what they said too. I think it's important to reiterate this point is uh, to, to not be, to, to not be afraid to walk away from a doctor. If you think they're not doing a sufficient job. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, a lot of times people feel like, oh, this is the doctor I've been going on for this amount of months or this amount of time. But if you can't access them, if they're not feel like they're giving you genuine interest as far as your health, um, walk away, find mm-hmm. another one because it's your health at stake. And you don't want to be in a situation where something turns out to be way worse because this doctor might have been negligent or didn't take you serious or whatever it is. Sometimes I've seen doctors that, you know, just have so many patients, they just try to be in and out, in and out, in and out. And just as me personally, I need a doctor that kind of just sits with me and talks with me and can I can ask questions. And it's not like I'm just, I only got five minutes, you know, like this is my health. I got some real questions here. I'm taking time out of my day. I need to know what's important. And um, if a doctor's not giving me that, then yeah, I got I got to bounce. You know, I got I need that time to to chat to see what I'm doing and what can be done. Um, so I think that's important because I just feel like sometimes people feel like they may be stuck, and nah, nah, it's okay. You ain't hurting their feelings. They'll they'll get another patient. They they will kind of along those uh, same lines. I really appreciated the conversation about like 
tell, like if something happens, be willing to report it. Um, because even if nothing happens, then if they see a pattern among like a particular physician, you know, there, that can be larger, you know, consequences for them, or there can be, um, an outcome that might help someone else. I also appreciated the point kind of along with what you were saying is, your doctor is somebody that you share very intimate details of your life with, or you should feel comfortable doing that. You know, if you ever meet a physician and you go in and there's something that has you like holding back potentially very important information, that could be a clue that maybe that's not the right doctor for you. And I thought that that was a good point that uh, Dr. John kind of mentioned, like, this is the person that you're supposed to be able to like talk intimately with. Um, and if you can't do that, there might be some barrier and maybe you should find someone else. Yeah, no, that's true. You don't want it to be that, you know, I watch a lot of these doctor shows, man, you know, <laughs> and maybe that one little clue or one thing they didn't tell them is what could have helped them diagnose something earlier or whatever. Right. Uh, I see it a lot on TV, so I'm sure it's the case for real life, too. You know, if you want to be able to at least see or the doctor be able to get as much information, you should feel comfortable. And if you're withholding information, then they may not be able to assess you accurately as they need to be. Um, mm-hmm. but if you don't feel comfortable doing that, then, yeah, it's already not a good relationship and, you know, you should look elsewhere. Um, so it's almost like a therapist kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, whatever you tell your doctor, if you ever go get a health insurance, be honest, because when you sign documents for uh, not health insurance, life insurance, when you sign documents for life insurance, you actually give them access to your medical records and that can include your physician's notes. So if you sign up for life insurance, uh, be honest, especially if you've told something to your doctor, because they're going to find out anyway. (laughs) Yeah, them life insurance, they don't play, they they dig deep. They dig deep. That's they something I found deep. out. I would I was getting some life insurance and then, you know, there's like this medical authorization form and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, they about to get all up in my business. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I had to remember whatever I told my doctor, I wanted to be honest because they give a questionnaire too. So mm-hmm. that's just a little piece of advice. If you're getting life insurance, when they ask you like those very long questionnaires, if you've told your doctor something, be honest with the life insurance company because they're going to find out anyway. Yep. Yep. They find out. Uh, yeah, prescriptions, all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, prescriptions. Like if you tell your do- uh, your doctors that you've smoked marijuana and they make a note of that, mm-hmm. it, the the company will find out since we <laughs> talked about marijuana. <laughs> 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 so make sure you are honest. People don't try to get their life insurance, people. I, but I can see why people do it, try to get them low rates, man. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, if you have these bad habits, they'll still give it to you. You just might pay a higher rate. So, yeah, 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 just a little higher rate. <laughs> um, that's funny. That's too funny. But but no, good good conversation. I, I meant to ask them, too, if they watch Married to Medicine. Um because that's always funny. Uh, I, I know Dr. John does not. Okay. <laughs> he actually thinks a horrible show. <laughs> that's what I wanted to ask him. How do they, <laughs> as being black folks in medicine, how do they feel about the portrayal of people in their profession? I, but I can see it. I'm like, yeah, they can see all these doctors, black doctors, be at the crazy on their spare time. Arguing and stuff like that, yeah. No. Screaming to the top of their lung on boats and stuff. I'm like, yeah. goodness. I love it, though. That's a funny <laughs> show. Yeah. They need they need to do like a show. Of, I'll be trying to like black academics or something, man. I don't know. Let, let's get it started, Ty. 
I've been trying. <laughs> they need graduate school and black graduate school or something. I need to be. I need to be executive producer. I need to figure out pitch right? that to somebody. Right. Yeah. You want to be on the back end. That's where the money is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need to be in the camera. <laughs> Um, but no, nah, no, nah, I appreciate uh, both of the docs coming to talk to us and, and give their insights on the profession and advice on yeah. what we should be doing um, and interacting with them and how we should be interacted with by doctors and medical professionals and, and like. Uh, but other than that, you know, uh, if you haven't yet, follow us on social media at PhD Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Go to our website, www.blackandhollydangerous.com to keep up with all our latest content. Uh, you can email us at bhdpodcast at gmail.com uh, with any ideas, content ideas. If you'd like to be on the show, whatever it is, if you just want to say hello, hit us up. Um, other than that, also share us, uh, before you share us, uh, re- review and rate us on iTunes because um, that helps us out a lot. And then after you do that, go ahead and share us with your friends, share us with your family, and share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.